This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living being. Or perhaps not. Science tells us today that this is not at all how it happened. They've pointed out to us that about 13.7 billion years ago, an infinitely dense, infinitely small piece of matter exploded hurling matter throughout the vast expanses of the vacuum of space. About 4.6 billion years ago, a homogenized solid earth formed and the crust solidified about 3.6 million years ago. About 3.5 million years ago, life appeared, coming from non-life, just in the primordial ooze because the temperature was just right and there was just enough magnetism and electricity and all the other things. For that one time in all of history, life appeared on the earth from non-life. About 450 million years ago, fish were formed through an evolutionary process. About 250 million years ago, reptiles formed. About 200 million years ago, mammals formed. About 20 million years ago, hominids, the ones who are considered direct evolutionary ancestors for us, were formed. About 4 million years ago, the Australopithecines were formed. <coughs> Excuse me, about 1.6 million years ago, Homo erectus evolved. About 200,000 years ago, Neanderthal man evolved, and about 50,000 years ago, modern man appeared upon the face of the earth. These are our choices. Creation, revolution. Is man the crowning achievement of God's creation week? Or is he merely the latest occurrence in an accidental process of blind, progressive change. These are our options. I have a problem when we start talking about this sort of thing. I am a preacher. I am not a scientist. When I start listening to scientists speak, my head starts to spin. I start to get a little confused. They use terms that I don't understand. They talk about discoveries that I can't remember. They claim facts that I just have to take on faith in the honesty of their word. And it doesn't take long for me just to shut down. And even when I start listening to Christians who are scientists, it does the same thing. So I try to just make things very simple as I try to figure out the answers to these questions. The Bible says that God created the world and all things in it. So that He created man the crowning achievement of his week of creation. The question is, in all that science has demonstrated to us, in all the study that's been done, in all that's been found, is there any evidence out there regarding the origin of man that denies what the Bible says? And what I have found is that the answer is a resounding no. There's not one stitch of evidence that denies what the Bible claims about the origin of man. Tonight, I'd like for us to take some time to discuss this issue. You can see that I'm down here on the floor. This is a little bit unusual, but I'll just go ahead and tell you what happened. I was asked by the Jackson Heights congregation to present this lesson during their fall focus that they have, which uh, covers their Wednesday night classes, and I uh, did a lot of work on it, and I decided I did way too much work to only preach that thing once. So I wanted you all to be able to, to hear it as well. But their slides are a lot bigger than ours, and I couldn't get these slides down onto our narrow thing, so I had to roll out the whole screen, and so I'm just down here with you guys tonight. But I hope it's beneficial to you. Before we get into our lesson, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Glorious Father in heaven, we love you, and we're thankful for you. We're so thankful that you've created this world. We're thankful that you've created us and placed us here in this world that is so perfectly suited for us. We can't help but look around and notice design in every aspect of this world, in the universe, in the solar system, uh, in, in our galaxy, even in our own bodies, in the way the world works. We're just amazed, and in fact, we're somewhat puzzled that other people can look at this same world and not see your fingerprints all over it. Father, we ask that you help us to have open hearts and open minds to what you have revealed in your word and to what you have revealed in your world. And help us to be open and honest. And help us to learn what, can, what we can in order to teach others and to draw them closer to you. Father, we thank you for loving us. Through your Son who died for us, we pray. 
Amen. As we consider this question, the very first thing that I want you to take a look at is the difference between science and the real world. The real world is what's out there. It's just the way things are. It's the way things have been. It's the way things always will be. The real world is just the way it works. The real world is governed by laws, some of which we've discovered, some of which we probably haven't discovered. Science, on the other hand, is not the real world. Science, which comes from the Latin word for knowledge, is man's attempt to interpret the real world. Science is man's study and attempts to say here is how the real world works. And man doesn't always get it right. In fact, there are numerous times where man and scientists have to say, what we said with science last week is no longer valid. Consider something that we all learned about in high school. For years and years and years, generations, science said that spontaneous generation occurs. Uh, abiogenesis, life coming from non-life. It had been seen by repeated observation over and over and over again. In fact, every single one of us can conduct the experiment. Just take a piece of meat one day and lay it out on your back porch and watch what happens. In just a few days, there's going to be flies buzzing up from out of that meat. And so they learned that life can come from what is not living. That is until the 1860s. Louis Pasteur conducted some other tests, and he recognized that that was not a controlled environment. And in reality, he proved that abiogenesis doesn't happen. Spontaneous generation never happens. Life never comes from non-life. Life always comes from life. Now, the real world had always been like that. Science, however, didn't figure it out until the 1860s. Now, I will just throw this in for free. Since then, scientists have been trying to disprove that. Because as we've already learned today, if you're going to believe in evolution, you have to believe that that happened at least once. And they've not yet been able to overthrow the science of Louis Pasteur. When we deal with the concept of evolution and the evolution and the origin of man, it's no different. It's constantly changing. The things that they said were science last week are not necessarily science this week. Consider a quote from a man named Jerry De Silva. He is the Life Sciences Interpretation Coordinator of the Boston Museum of Science. And he wrote, and this paper, by the way, which we're going to quote several times, is written to help teachers of evolution know how to instruct our kids in evolution. And here's what he said. Since Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species in 1859, paleoanthropologists have been searching for fossil evidence of our past and fiercely debating hypotheses for human ancestry. Many popular ideas have come and gone, and some of the most enthusiastically endorsed hypotheses have withered in the light of new evidence. Just this year, two newly discovered fossil hominids have forced paleoanthropologists to reanalyze the evolution of bipedalism in our ancestors. I think this paper was written, by the way, in about 2002. But notice what he says. He says here that there have been lots of ideas that have come and gone. There were things that they said were science that are no longer science. They said this is the way the real world worked, but no, actually we found new evidence and it didn't work that way. Some of the most enthusiastically endorsed, hypo endorsed hypotheses have withered in the light of new evidence. They've just had, in this year, two new discoveries that caused them to reanalyze the evolution of man. You see, what was science last week is not necessarily science this week. The real world is out there. The way it really works is really there, and all science is is man's attempt to interpret it. And this is important for us to understand. Because those that we talk to like to act as though it's the scientists that have all the facts. Scientists have all the answers. They've discovered all that there is to know about all these things. But in reality, science is not like that at all. Really, if you want to know the truth, it's a lot like Bible study. Have you ever studied a passage and you were certain you had it figured out, but then you came back to it six months later and you realized you were wrong? Anybody ever had that? That's exactly what the scientists do. They study things in the world and they say, oh, we've got it figured out. This is the way it is. And then six months later they find something else. Say, nope, we were all wrong. It's something completely different. The only difference is they're studying the world. We're studying the Bible. But there's a problem. And the problem is, is that the great majority of scientists, as they approach their study of the real world, they start with a debilitating and dishonest bias. I want you to think about that. They start their study, many of them, not all, but many, start with a debilitating and dishonest bias. And we can see this bias when we just ask the question, what is science? To the evolutionist, what is science? 
According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, on the simplest level, science is knowledge of the world of nature. But it goes on later to say, science then is to be considered in this article as knowledge of natural regularities that is subjected to some degree of skeptical rigor and explained by rational causes. If we're not careful as we study this definition, we might miss the parts that are important. Did you notice that it talked about natural regularities, rational causes? Natural regularities as opposed to supernatural regularities. Rational causes as opposed to philosophical or theological causes. Do you see what this definition is? By definition, these guys, as they approach science, it's about what is natural, not supernatural. It's about what's rational, not theological. You can't possibly have the supernatural and still call it science, according to these. It can't be theological and still be science. So if it's science... God cannot be part of the picture. God's involvement cannot be part of the picture. Now, don't misunderstand. There are many scientists who, while they will hold on to this definition, will be quick to tell us, now, we're not saying God doesn't exist. We're just saying that as we study the world, we are not ever allowed to get to a point where we say, and God acted here. There always has to be a naturalistic cause for all things. So as we're studying how man got here, we're not ever allowed to say, and God said, let there be life. We're not allowed to say that because that would be supernatural and that wouldn't be science. Do you see the bias? We're not allowed to see God as we study this. Now the question is, or, or the issue is, that whether you say God is non-existent or whether you say God is merely uninvolved, the result is still the same. As you look at the world, evolution is a godless teaching. You do not come up with evolution because you have studied the evidence and decided God must not have been involved. You come up with evolution because you begin with the, the foundation that God is not involved. And that leads to evolution. Romans Chapter 1, verse 18 through 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2 say, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There are some of us that look at the grand design of something as expansive as our galaxy, and we cannot help but see a grand designer. There are some of us who look at the intricate detail of something as microscopic as a cell or an atom, and we cannot help but see an intricate detailer. But those who follow the definition of science that we've just read, that is the very thing that they are not allowed to see. It's not that they don't see it, it's that they can't see it and still maintain their level of scientists they believe. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 4 says, Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. But that's the one thing that evolutionists are just not allowed to say. They'll look at this building and they'll know that somebody designed it, somebody constructed it, somebody nailed all the boards together, somebody painted it, somebody wired it. But they'll look at the universe and the amazing design of the universe so detailed that as fast as our earth is moving through around the sun and the moon is moving around the earth, they can shoot a rocket off and make it actually land on the moon. That's just phenomenal. That's how detailed and precise it is. But if we're going to be an evolutionist, we are not allowed at all to possibly say, God had anything to do with it. Just not allowed. That is a dishonest and debilitating bias. But it governs everything when it comes to the issue of evolution. As we move from this, we need to take a look at the origin of species. And what I'm about to share with you is, in my opinion, one of the most important things for you to keep in mind and remember whenever you're listening to, talking about, or reading anything about the origin of species, including the origin of the human species. Evolution, we're told, by the Gale Science Encyclopedia, is in the broadest sense change. However, the theory of evolution goes beyond that. The theory of evolution, according to the World Book Encyclopedia of Science, is the process by which organisms change from generation to generation, producing forms that are adapted to changes in the environment and eventually give rise to new species. 
That's very important. Give rise to new species. That's called speciation. That's what evolution is. It's the production of new species through this evolutionary change over generation from generation. Now, Encyclopedia Americana says, the only scientifically tenable explanation for both biological diversity and order is the theory of evolution. Now, keep in mind, it's the only scientifically tenable theory for those who claim that science means you can't possibly have God involved. I would suggest that it is tenable, that if there is order, to naturally believe there is someone who put it in order. But remember, if we're going to be evolutionists, we're not allowed to say that. It is not allowed. Because we start from the foundation that God can't possibly be involved. Because if He is, then it's no longer science. Origin of species. That is really the most important part of this whole concept of evolution. That new species are formed through generational change. The concept of the species was developed back in the 1700s by Carolus Linnaeus. Now here's the thing that you need to understand about this. Carolus Linnaeus did not come down from the mountain on high with tablets carved in stone saying, divide the animal kingdom into species. There was nothing in the world anywhere that says all animals can be divided into species. The concept of species was part of science. It was one man, remember what science is? One man's attempt to interpret what he sees. And he looked around and saw all these different kinds of animals and he tried to catalog them in different categories. And thus we have species. Since that time, the evolutionists have adopted the species nomenclature and used it for their ends. But here's something very important. Now, I know that when you were in school, you had to memorize the definition for species. Anybody remember that in high school? Some, maybe? No? Wow. Slept through that class, huh? You learned about kingdom and phyla and genus and species, and you had to memorize these definitions about what each of these were. They didn't tell us that in reality, nobody actually knows what a species is. Perhaps you've heard the most common definition, although apparently you don't remember it. The most widely accepted definition of a species is the biological species concept proposed by Ernst Mayer in the 1940s. A species is a population of individual organisms that can interbreed in nature, mating and producing fertile offspring in a natural setting. Species are organisms that share the same gene pool and therefore genetic and morphological similarities. However, did you notice the first couple of words of that? Not the definition, not the only definition, not the unanimous definition, just the most widely accepted definition. That tells us something. We don't actually know what the real definition is. In fact, later on in the exact same article, they go on to say, the precise definition of a species is a topic under constant scientific debate and likely will never fully be resolved. Rather, the definition may change with the perspectives and needs of each subdiscipline within biology. Do you see what that says? Man makes up the idea of species. Man cannot agree on what a species is. In addition to that, man is going to use whichever definition most suits his purposes in his discipline so he can change what it means whenever it fits his needs to change what it means. And I am the one who is called dishonest in all of this. Now, how does that work? We don't know what a species is. Not scientifically. These animals don't come labeled. Men are making it up. As they strive to interpret the real world, and we've already learned that men don't always get the real world right. Talk about this issue of species. Just so you can understand the, the problem here. There are two different kinds of groups that are dealing with the species. In fact, uh, it, this reminds me of what I've heard about preachers. You know that there are two different kinds of preachers. There's lumpers and there's stretchers. Lumpers are the guy who say, today we're going to get lessons from Genesis in under 20 minutes. He doesn't preach here. 
stretchers are the guys that say, today we're going to start our seven lesson series on Genesis 1 and verse 1. We're going to talk about the implications of the word in. That's, you know, we've got those guys that can just, it just stretches. Well, that's the way it is with these species students. There are lumpers and there are splitters. They look at the same evidence and they come up with different stories. Notice what Jerry De Silva says. Currently, there are two modes of thought in categorizing human ancestors. The lumpers, who tend to group fossils into relatively few species, and the splitters, who use measurable differences as evidence for prolific speciation in our past. Notice this. Each uses the same measurements and the same fossils, but interpret the results differently. Now, they're going to tell us they've got the facts. But as they look at all these bones and all these fossils, they come up with different stories. Looking at the same bones, the same measurements, the same fossils, but they come up with different hypotheses. He goes on to explain this as he looks at two separate scientists in these categories. He says, there's a guy named Tim White, a professor of integrative biology at the University of California, Berkeley. He uses the variation that exists within a species today to understand the fossil record. This strategy has landed him within the lumper category. Right now, there is oversplitting going on by modern people, inferring too many fossil species based on the differences they see between fossils. When the same differences are seen among skulls from a single modern species, for example, chimpanzees or gorillas or humans, says Dr. Watt. This is a good indication that naming many of the newer fossils as different species is not warranted. Let me see if I can boil this down for you. Basically, what he's saying is, is that I can look at different people today, and I see significant difference in their skeletons. I can look at different chimpanzees today and find significant differences in their skeletons, such that if a million years from now somebody found two different chimpanzees, they might not be able to tell that they are the exact same animal. If a million years from now somebody found the, uh, two different humans, they might not be able to tell they're the exact same animal. So what Tim White says is, just because you see some variations doesn't mean you're dealing with different species. And so he's a lumper. If they look similar, even if there are multiple differences, he'll say these are probably the same species. He lumps them together. But now we move on to the, the next guy, Ian Tattersall. He's what's called a splitter. It says, regarded now as a splitter, Ian Tattersall, the curator of the Anthropology Division of the American Museum of Natural History in New York, is influenced by his first research interest, lemurs. Fifty species of lemur reside on the island of Madagascar. And by the way, I don't know what definition of species he's using there. But he says 50 different species of lemur reside on the island of Madagascar, and by looking only at their skeletons, one may be hard-pressed to find enough measurable differences to distinguish all 50 species. Fur color, ovulatory cycles, behavior patterns, communication methods, and genetics do not fossilize. Therefore, even the slightest difference in skeletal morphology might constitute evidence for a new species. Tattersall studied lemur taxonomy for many years and now sees the same diversity in the human fossil record. He says there's these various kinds of lemurs, these various distinct species. Of course, notice, by the way, they're all still lemurs. But that's another discussion. So there's these various species that we, as we have interpreted the world today, we look at these species and we divide them up into these 50 different categories. But if you just dug up their skeleton, you wouldn't be able to tell that they were different. You can't, their fur doesn't fossilize. Their ovulatory cycles don't fossilize. Um, so many things don't fossilize that we can't see. So if you see even the minutest difference in skeletal structure, that probably indicates a completely different species. And so he's called a splitter. So as he looks at the fossils, he sees all kinds of species. De Silva explains to us the issue. As he goes on to say, Tim White, a lumper, looks at the fossil record and sees variation within a species. Ian Tattersall, a splitter, sees diversity and recognizes many different species. To highlight the difference, consider the following example. One million years from now, would a future paleoanthropologist be able to tell that a 7-foot, 2-inch basketball player like Shaquille O'Neal was a member of the same species as a 5-foot, 2-inch actor like Danny DeVito? Could they tell? You know, this really brings up the question. What if they found this skeleton? Or what about this one? Or what about this one? with rickets. You see, the problem they have is, guys, we've got to understand this. When they dig up those bones, they don't come labeled. There's nothing on those bones that say, I am an Australopithecine. They dig up a bone, most of the time fragments of bones. And then they decide, based on what their view of how we got here is, where it fits. 
And so our author says, this is the challenge to the paleoanthropologist, trying to decide whether a new fossil discovery represents a new species or a variant of an already recognized animal. You see the point? We dig up the bone and we don't know what it is. We have to decide. Is it something we've already discovered? Is it the same as a modern human? Is it an ape? Is it, or is it something completely different? We don't know. We guess. And we guess based on what we think or what we already think happened. It's not enough just to notice the confusion. I want you to also see how this is used dishonestly. The same author here, Jerry De Silva, tells about a find that happened back in about 1972. It's called K&M ER 1470. It's a skull. K&M because it was, it's now housed in the Kenyan National Museum and ER because it was found at the East Lake Rudolphus. So that's where it was, that was discovered. And it was labeled at that time Homo habilis. However, some other folks came across it and studied it and said, no, that's not what it is. It's actually a Homo rudolphensis. In about 2001, Meve Leakey discovered another skull, another fossil, which she called the Kenyan Thropus platyops. And people who have now compared those skulls say, you know what, these things are very similar. So we're going to call this 1470 the Kenyan Thropus rudolphensis. We don't know what it is. Here's what De Silva says about it. So, what is 1470? Some still say it's a Homo habilis, some say it's a Homo rudolphensis, and now some call it a Kenyan Thropus rudolphensis. This can be confusing to teachers and students alike. You think? Ultimately, though, the names do not matter. The creature that died and left what we call 1470 lived approximately 1.8 million years ago. No one argues that fact. We're not going to get into that. There are lots of people that argue that, but they wouldn't be called scientists. Whether 1470 was a habilis or a rudolphensis should not be the focus in the classroom. As Tim White suggests, why confuse your students with this? Get them onto relationships, not names. Do you see what he's saying here? We don't know what this thing is. We're just going to guess. But don't let your students know that. That might confuse them. It might cause them to believe that evolution is just a bunch of garbage. Don't confuse them with the fact that we don't know what these things are. Let's just talk about relationships. Let's not talk about names. But, brethren, names matter. Because what if somebody examined this skull and looked at it and said, you know what, this skull is really just a homo sapien. Then it'd just be one of us. What if they looked at it and said, you know what, this skull is a pungotigmeus. I looked that up just so I could really impress you. That's an orangutan. But you see, these names do matter. Because it's these names that place these spines in an evolutionary structure. We don't know what it is. We're guessing. We can't tell if it's a new species or if it's something we've already found. But don't confuse people with those facts. Just tell them that, look, we all agree that evolution happened. It happened 1.8 million years ago. And as long as you agree with that, we don't care what you call it. That's what's happening in evolution. I'll show you one more quote here along the same lines. This is an Encyclopedia Britannica. I know a lot of you can't see that down at the bottom there. The fossil evidence of the Australopithecines, this is one of our supposed evolutionary ancestors, the, the fossil evidence of the Australopithecines has been seen by some scholars as merely representing temporal stages within a single evolving hominid lineage leading to Homo erectus and thence to Homo sapiens. Others have stressed the extent of the adaptive differences between various fossils have suggested that there may have been two or even three lineages evolving in parallel, only one of which led to the later species Homo. In other words, there might have just been one evolutionary line, there might have been two or three coming from this. We don't know. Whatever the details of their interpretations, however, most common paleontologists are agreed that the Australopithecines represent a link, direct or indirect, between the fossil apes and human beings. He says, we don't know how it happened. And everybody has their different view of how it happened, but that doesn't matter as long as everybody believes that it happened by evolution. As long as everybody sees some kind of link, we don't care what you say about it, as long as you say evolution. That's what's being said. And that's just dishonest. That's not really science. That's what you have to resort to if you're going to start with the foundation that I'm just not allowed to say God did it. Genesis chapter 1, verse 11 through 12 says, Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. 
Verse 21 says, God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 24 says, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God created kinds. What are these kinds? I don't know. He didn't exactly tell what those kinds were. Are they equal to species as we describe them today? Maybe, maybe not. But I'll tell you what we do know. Dogs give birth to dogs. Cats give birth to cats. Lemurs give birth to lemurs. Apes give birth to apes. And humans give birth to humans. And we've never seen anything other than that take place. No amount of testing and experimentation and observation has ever seen anything other than that. Why then, when we've never seen anything remotely like that, when we start digging up bones, are we going to start telling stories about how, well, this is probably an Australopithecine who gave birth to a Homo erectus, who gave, or excuse me, a Homo habilis, who gave birth to a Homo erectus, who gave birth to a Homo sapien, or whatever other kind of family tree we might come up with through the evolutionary chain? What has science actually observed? Even the scientists who have studied rapidly regenerating species have never once seen a species give rise to another species. They've, and they've tried. They have tried. Externally, they have produced mutations, and they have tried. But those little fruit flies have always just produced other fruit flies. That's all they've ever been. They've never produced anything else. What do they see? Kind producing after kind. We'll dig up a lot of bones. We don't know what they mean. We'll guess at it, and we'll make sure to fit it so that we have to say evolution. That is what's going on. But what have we observed? We haven't observed that. We haven't observed that at all. In fact, it's, it's almost kind of pointless to search in the fossil record for something that's going to prove transition because the reality is no matter what bone is ever dug up, no matter what fossil is ever found, all we know, for all we know, it could have just been a kind that God created. They don't come labeled. They don't come saying, I was, this was my mother over here, this other one. It doesn't say that. We have to guess. And so now, where the rubber meets the road, the descent of man. How did man get here? We've all heard all the, the terms, Cro-Magnon, Neanderthal, Australopithecine, Homo erectus, all these other things that have gone on and on. <clears throat> Please understand, when you see the pictures, when you see the, the drawings, that's not what's found. They find bones. They find fragments of bones. We already had a quote that says, hair doesn't fossilize. They don't know how much hair is on that creature. They don't know what the skin looked like. They don't know what the internal organs were like. They don't know anything about it, except for here's a fragment of bone. And they draw these elaborate constructs to show how it all fits together. But the descent of man. The Gale Encyclopedia of Science says, evolutionary change occurs as a result of mutation, migration, genetic drift, and natural selection, and it is ultimately a passive process, devoid of any purpose or goal. As a scientific theory, it is an interconnected series of statements corroborated by a large body of evidence. Thus, biologists accept the historical reality of evolution as a fact, even though the details of how it works are still being investigated. How did man get here? What's he say there? We don't know. But we accept it as a fact. We accept the historical reality of evolution as a fact. But we don't know how it worked, even though the details of how it works are still being investigated. So what does it say to us? It says that the evolutionists, when they're trying to explain to us the origin of man, they're going to say, we know it happened by evolution. We haven't figured out how evolution worked. We haven't figured out how man actually got here. But we know it was evolution. And as long as you say evolution, that's all that matters. Encyclopedia Americana says, the theory of evolution serves as the underlying assumption of every biological science and as such represents the field's greatest unifying theme. Did you catch that? Now, to be fair, the Encyclopedia Americana is not saying that scientists have just assumed evolution. Most of them do believe that the evidence demonstrates evolution. But I, I share this quote with you because when this is the kind of statement that we're going to make, how do you think the evidence is going to be handled? 
when a new bone is found, when something in biology is discovered, they don't sit back and say, does this teach, what, does, does this support evolution or does it support something else? No, they assume evolution. Every new piece of evidence is never, never calls evolution into question. And now I may call into question our model for evolution. Maybe, maybe there was a different missing link in the middle there. But it was always evolution. Why? Because we assume it. And no matter what we discover, that's the assumption. And we're going to fit it into the evolutionary model somehow. And so no wonder we come up with a quote like this from Richard Dawkins in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, that says, The theory of evolution by cumulative natural selection is the only theory we know of that is in principle capable of explaining the existence of organized complexity. Even if the evidence did not favor it, it would still be the best theory available. Even if the evidence did not favor it, it would still be the best theory available. Now, again, in fairness, Richard Dawkins does believe the evidence supports his theory. But if I'm going to say something like this, do you think this kind of mindset taints the way I view the evidence? What he is saying is, even if the evidence showed him that it didn't work this way, this is the way it had to work, because it's the only way that makes real sense. If I said something like this, if I said, look, even if the evidence demonstrates that the Genesis account <coughs> is not valid, the Genesis account is still the best theory we've got. I would be called dishonest. Richard Dawkins gets to say it, then that's called science. I don't understand how that works. <clears throat> on becoming, uh, becominghuman.org, on their website, which has a, like, an interactive documentary that you can go through to describe all this evolutionary stuff, it says that some critics of evolutionary theory, theory claim that scientists disagree about the concept of evolution, but this is not the case. While they may disagree over the details of ways in which the process unfolds, scientists do not question the existence of evolution. Do you see that? No matter what, we do not question the existence of evolution. Now, we don't know how it unfolded. Here's my question. If I don't know how something unfolded, how can I be sure that it unfolded at all? We, we disagree on how it unfolded, but we all agree that it's by evolution. Man got here by evolution. Do you see how they come up with evolution? They don't come up with it because there's all this evidence out there that says we've got evolution of man and man came from these uh, evolutionary descendants. They come up with it because we don't question it. We assume it. Even if the evidence doesn't support it, it's the best theory we've got. So no matter what evidence we get, we interpret it within that. We never question evolution. Now, at this point, I could do what you've probably seen in other lessons, and I could talk to you about discoveries that have been found and, and the problems that they've had with them. I could talk to you about the Piltdown Man, which was discovered in 1912. Forty-two years later, they realized it was a hoax. It was a combination of a modern orangutan jaw, chimpanzee teeth, and a modern human skull cap that had been stained by chemical compounds. It took them 41 years for the brightest scientific minds to realize that Piltdown Man was a hoax. We can talk about the Nebraska man, discovered in 1922. It was supposed to be used in the Scopes Monkey trial. Uh, but but by, the, in fact, by the way, they didn't find a man, they found a tooth. And the guy who found it was certain it had to be a hominid tooth, and they were going to use it in the Scopes Monkey trial right here in Tennessee. But by the time the trial got here, they had figured out, no, it's a pig tooth. Could talk about that K&ER 1470 skull discovered in 1972 by Neve Leakey. But it was reconstructed by another scientist in 2001, and both discoveries and both reconstructions, or both constructions, caused them to reanalyze evolution. We talk about Neanderthal, man. Y'all remember Neanderthal? That's the one we heard about in high school all the time. Even movies made about Neanderthal, man. Evolutionary ancestor. Actually, no, he was just another homo sapien. Probably had rickets and some other issues. That's why it looks a little bit different. We could go through all these kind of, and there's so many more of these that I could show you, but your problem would simply be the same as mine. And that is, is that with just a little bit of research, you're going to find differing ideas on both sides of these stories, and it finally is just going to come down to <clears throat> who are we going to have faith in that's telling us the truth. And so instead of just looking at all of these things and trying to get us to see all these problems that even the scientists have had with it, I just want you to see the state of this evolutionary thinking and what they really know. And the reality is, they don't know anything. 
They're just making a lot of guesses. They believe they're educated guesses. I believe they're biased guesses. Listen to some of the things that the scientists will tell us. Encyclopedia Britannica says, Hence, the details of hominid origins remain unknown and the subject of lively debate and substantial speculation. Evolutionists tell us they know the origin of man, but under the cover of darkness, if we study those, and this is just an encyclopedia, you, know, you don't have to be a major student to find this sort of thing. They'll tell us, well, in reality, we don't know how we got here. Encyclopedia Britannica also says on the previous page, in the absence of fossil record, structural and other adaptations have been projected back. See, that's some of that substantial speculation. As an ancestral condition from living descended species, but this is a very risky procedure. We're making guesses. We're speculating. We're projecting. But it's a very risky procedure because we know we can't really come up with any kind of truth on that. They won't tell you that, though. Encyclopedia Botanica also says the recognition and suitable definition of the genus Homo and its initial representatives has been a persistently troublesome problem. There have been no formal diagnoses, and the few characterizations offered suffer from both lack of definitive character states and inclusiveness. It's a persistently troublesome problem. There's no formal diagnoses, and even what's been out there, we've got problems with that anyway. You see the point? We don't know how it happened. Jerry De Silva says, Many hominid species once existed, but today only one remains, us. How did this happen? Again, it depends on whom you ask. Tim White, Ian Tattersall, remember those are the two scientists we talked about earlier. You need leaky phylogenies or family trees, all different. Even though their interpretations are based on the same measurements, using the same equipment, the same units, the same well-aged fossils, these phylogenies are working hypotheses designed to be tested and scrutinized while flexible enough to be changed when new evidence is found. For students, the lessons from these family trees should not be the lines themselves, but why scientists draw the relationship they do and why they disagree. So look, these guys, they have all the same equipment, the same units, the same measurements, same fossils, but their interpretations are all different. But don't get the students thinking about that. Excuse me, thinking about that. Just getting thinking about the relationships. These are the questions. Why do scientists draw the relationship they do, and why do they disagree? And I know the answer to both those questions, brethren. Why do they draw the relationships they do? Because they start with the bias that you can't have God involved. Why do they disagree? Because they don't know the facts. Because those bones don't come up labeled. And because they don't tell us a consistent story of evolution. I love this quote. Textbooks. Now, those of you in high school and college, these textbooks that, you're, that you have, textbooks do not communicate the excitement and debate generated by new discoveries. The typical linear representations of our evolutionary history are not only incorrect, they are boring. We knew that second part, didn't we? But you notice that he says the typical thing that you find in the textbook is incorrect. Even the scientists say that the thing that we typically get taught about evolution in our textbooks is incorrect. Using the model we propose, students have an opportunity to explore science with more questions than answers. What? I thought you had all the answers. No, we've got more questions. We really don't know. Without having to memorize oversimplified versions of human ancestry. Well, that would be great. I wish my test teachers had used that model. The Boston Museum of Science, where Jerry DeSilva came from, shows us a couple of models for the possibility of evolution. And here's what they said. Although there are thousands of fossils of humans' ancestors, the exact relationship between each of these specimens has yet to be determined. Scientists present competing hypotheses and test which may be correct. Here we present three current, equally valid hypotheses of the hominid family tree. My first question is, if there are three different ones, how can they be equally valid? But here we've got one of them. And I know you can't see it... Uh, close up, and that's okay, that's not necessary. If you want to study this closer on the back page of the outline, I have all three of these charts. What I just want you to see from your seat is notice how there's a bunch of different ones, and these lines split off in several places. That's Ian Tattersall. Remember, he was the splitter. Then we have Tim White. He was the lumper. Notice how his is different. This one splits off in various locations. This one's kind of a straight line until you get up here, and there's a few splits, because he was the lumper. Now, they, same fossils, same measurements, same units, different stories. Then there's this Meeve Leakey, and hers is completely different. She won't even draw lines. She just has, well, here's the fossils we found, and I think these might be related. Here's what De Silva says about this. Recognizing the uncertainty of their interpretation, both Ian Tattersall and Tim White use dotted lines instead of solid lines in their family trees. 
Neve Leakey takes this caution a step further and does not even use lines. She draws circles around the related species. You might, I don't know if you can see from where you are, these lines here connecting them are dotted because they say, well, they're uncertain. Remember, we've got to keep it flexible because next week we're going to find something that's probably going to prove all this wrong anyway. Uh, so they have dotted lines. But she doesn't even draw a line. She just has the circles. Now, the Silva had a conversation with Neve Leakey, and here's what she said. The species enclosed in the ellipses are those that share features that appear to link them. I do suggest relationships, but I do not give such detailed relationships as those who draw lines because I believe the lines imply that we know more about how things are related than we actually do. See what she says is? This implies we know something that we don't know. And then she goes on to say, we will never know exactly how any species relates to another unless by some amazing good fortune we are ever able to extract DNA from these fossils, which we can't. See what she says? We don't know and we'll never know unless something that we can't do, suddenly we can't. Genesis 2.7 says, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. Evolutionists tell us we just don't know. We don't know how it got here. What we're going to do is we're going to find these fossils and we're going to pick them up and they're not labeled and we're just going to fit them into our story. But in the end, we have to say that it's uncertain. We don't know. It's just a matter of speculation. Why do we come up with this speculation? Because we are not allowed to believe that God did it. Period. Has the evidence demonstrated that? No. No, the evidence hasn't demonstrated that. Our preconceived bias has demanded that. But the Bible says God formed it. And there is not one stitch of evidence that denies it. There's one more point here that I think we need to know before we're done with our lesson tonight. And this is the difference between the fact and the story. I want to give you an illustration. It's going to seem like we're getting a little bit off track, but I hope by the time we're done you'll understand. In Genesis chapter 37, Jacob's sons come to him and they bring a coat dipped in blood. And they say, is this your son's coat? And Jacob says, this is my son's coat. He's been torn apart by wild beasts. In that account, please recognize the difference between the facts and the story. In that account, the facts are only two. This was Joseph's coat. This coat had blood on it. That's it. Then Jacob told himself a story. It was a logical story. Given the evidence that he had, it was a probable story. Given the evidence he had, probably the great majority of people who saw it would say that's probably what has happened. The only problem is, it was the wrong story. But Jacob believed it. He believed it so much that several chapters later, when his sons came back and said, we found Joseph in Egypt, he didn't believe them at first. Facts and story. Fact is the way it is. Fact is something we can all agree on. Nobody would ever question, there's a pew right here. That's just a fact. Story is something else. How did that pew get there? Once I start telling you that, then it's a story. And that's what we have in this discussion of evolution and creation. Evolutionists try to tell us that evolution is a fact. That is just not so. Evolution is a story. To be fair, on a scientific level, creation is also a story. The facts are we've got lots of bones, but we don't know what they are. That's the fact. Which story do they tell? Well, that's probably going to depend on how we approach them. And interestingly, every once in a while you can get an evolutionist who will agree that this is the case. I'd like to share with you just a couple more quotes here from Dr. Gareth Nelson. I don't know if you can see this. This is actually a preface to a book called The Origin of Species Revisited. The Origin of Species Revisited is a procreation book. It's opposed to evolution. However, Gareth Nelson, who wrote this preface, is an evolutionist. In his preface to the book, The Origin of Species Revisited, he said, all facts fit all theories. You see, basically what he's saying is, you can make the facts fit any story you want, if you try hard enough. 
That is a fact of life. Facts fit some theories better than other theories, and that is another fact of life, one which enables science to progress when a better theory is created by the human spirit. Excuse me. As he comments on this book, he says, this book has virtue as criticism of evolutionary theory. It has virtue even though its criticism is loaded like the proverbial pair of dice. Indeed, when Mr. Bird rolls for evolutionary theory, who would expect anything but snake eyes to come up? Still, he rolls the dice with style. He rolls them over and over again with the same result. Mr. Bird is concerned with origins and the evidence relevant thereto. I included this so you know that Gareth Nelson is not really on his side. But he goes on to say this. He is basically correct that evidence or proof of origins, of the universe, of life, of all the major groups of life, of all the minor groups of life, indeed of all the species, is weak or non-existent. When measured on an absolute scale, as it always was and will always be, he is correct also that what evidence there is, is sometimes even often exaggerated by evolutionists. Yes, they load their own dice, for they too are human. They too play to the gallery, to the jury, and to the judges. Were they entirely wise rather than adversarial, they would never claim to have done the impossible to have proved the correctness of their views by offering evidence of the origin of things. You see what he says? He says we don't know. We're all telling stories. He says even evolutionists exaggerate. And if they were entirely wise, they would quit saying that we've proven evolution. Which story do you tell? These are our choices, creation or evolution. I can't tell you which story to choose. You have to decide that on your own. And I realize that what I presented to you tonight is not absolute proof that God created the world. I know that. Brethren, frankly, I'm not sure that I can provide that for you. But as you take a look at the world, as you take a look at its intricate precision and how amazingly it works, the design that's all around us. What do you see? The handiwork of God? Or just some colossal cosmic progressive accident? For me, the answer is obvious. And we can't go into the world with this confidence. There is absolutely no evidence out there that denies this. None. 